0: If you simply turn over uh, all the institutions of power to the left, there won't be any place to retreat to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because unlike our side, leftists wield the power they have. And then some, right?
0: Right, right. And they have no intention of leaving us alone. The idea that you can simply withdraw uh, assumes that there's a space to withdraw to. But the left doesn't have any intention of leaving any such space. (laughs)
1: Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're watching or listening, if this is something that you're enjoying, I would encourage you to give us a rating. And you know, the only rating that we're interested in is a five-star rating. So if you're enjoying this, whether you're watching or listening, but only four out of five stars, don't leave a rating for that. Just sort of make up an extra star. All sarcasm aside, this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to because while I just now met in person, Dr. Glenn Elmer's. We have just established that we're kindred spirits, as I think will be obvious in this podcast. So, Dr. Elmers, Glenn, thanks for being here.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted.
1: So I think most people who pay attention to this podcast and this genre of podcast about politics, policy, conservatism, America, probably know who you are, probably very familiar with your work. But, you know, the Southerner in me has sort of has has to establish where someone's from and how in the world they got here. (laughs) Tell me.
0: Right. So grew up in New York. I'm a Yankee. Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I went to college in Boston and then uh, most significantly uh, after uh, working at the John Olin Foundation uh, in New York, went out to Claremont to study political philosophy uh, with Harry Jaffa, who became my teacher, and then some other People who may be known to your audience, Charles Kessler and other people sure. like that, who had been friends with Bill Buckley uh, and studied political philosophy there, um, took a long hiatus, worked for the federal government for a long time at the Energy Department. Oh, we've got to nu- talk about that. Then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, yeah, <laughs> um, and then went back uh, just recently to finish my PhD, and and uh, sort of at the same time wrote this book on mm. my teacher uh, Harry Jaffa, who had died in 2015. Uh, in part because his papers, which he left to Hillsdale College, had become available. Larry Arne, who's a mm-hmm. mutual friend of ours, the president there at Hillsdale, made those papers available to me. And I was able to look through Joffa's letters and personal papers, which really added an interesting, an interesting dimension uh, to the book.
1: It, it, there, it, the book is terrific. And it's one of the things we're going to talk about, Is I, I told you, I just finished it this morning and, and, and entirely love it. I, I really do mean that. I failed to introduce you properly because I get so hung up on this just being a conversation. You're a visiting research scholar at Hillsdale and also director of research at the Claremont Institute.
0: So, uh, yeah, so I actually have a new title now. Oh, late on. Us. I'm the Henry Salvatore Research Scholar of the American Founding.
1: That's really uh, Claremont fancy. Institute. Dr. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I can call you Glenn. anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Henry Salvatore was one of the original benefactors at Claremont, and sure. I actually met him when I was in grad school there. He's passed away since then. Yeah. so that's kind of an honor. N-
1: another me. luminary yeah. Yeah. Wh- whom yeah. we honor here at Heritage right? as well. Right. And, and, and thank you for that. And all kidding aside about your title. Congratulations. Our institutions, uh, the, the two where you are affiliated, Heritage Foundation, are not just all part of a movement we love. But in a lot of ways, and perhaps ways we can tease out, largely philosophically aligned yeah. in a movement that, of course, always has tensions and fissures. And, and Jaffa, among others uh, of his contemporaries, was very willing to mix it up, as you oh, describe yeah. well in your book. But And we'll get into that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your own work in terms of the the scholarship that you do separate from the book that you wrote about him?
0: Sure, sure. So, like a lot of Claremont people, like mm. a lot of Jaffa students, uh, I'm interested in political theory. I have sort of an interest in in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. I've written a little bit about Aristotle's views on biology and science. Obviously, Aristotle's political science, uh, his book on, books on the politics and the ethics, are you know, old favorites of mine. But uh, again, um, uh, like a lot of Claremont and Jaffa people, I've I've really focused on America, understanding the principles of the American founding. Mm-hmm. Jaffa's great contribution, I think, as one of the first students of the great Leo Strauss, who a lot of your viewers probably know about, Jaffa really took Strauss's insights about the transhistorical truth of political philosophy and applied that to America and was one of the first serious scholars to say what the founders said in in the late 1700s was not just a reflection of the 18th century. They Mm -hmm. were not just men of their times. What they said about all men are created equal, that government derives its legitimacy from the consent of the governed that all human beings have natural rights. That was all. That was true then, it is true now, and it will always be true as long as there are human beings. And that was kind of a remarkable insight mm-hmm. in the scholarly world in the middle of the 20th century when Jaffa started his work on Lincoln. And so that, you know, applying those insights to the understanding of America has been one of my focuses.
1: Well, and it's important, you know, I'd, I'd say this as a, as a historian, that so many students over the years have come up to me and said, Dr. Roberts, I can't believe there's yet another book being written about the Civil War or about Lincoln. And I'm not, I don't have a negative comment to say about any of them, but there are probably some better than others, right? But where I'm going with that is it's often surprising for younger conservatives as they're starting to to deepen their knowledge of the movement and the recent history of the movement. And, and obviously, uh, your, your director, uh, Harry Jaffa is a huge part of that in modern America that. They are surprised to hear that he discovered in the Lincoln-Douglas debates sort of the key that unlocks this, right? Yeah. And so while I'm sure many members of our audience know this well, especially if they've read your book, tell us about that because the, the antebellum historian in me just loves his, his awareness of this in his career.
0: Yeah. So Jaffa thought that the Civil War was a kind of world historical event because mm-hmm. it proved the possibility of a govern- government by the consent of the people that a government based on equal natural rights was actually possible. But he came to his understanding of Lincoln and of America through the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And that is an interesting little story. So when Jaffa was a young graduate student in New York studying with the great Leo Strauss, Mm -hmm. he had been reading Plato's Republic, which is this famous dialogue about the nature of justice. And Socrates mixes it up with this other character that Plato talks about uh, called Thrasymachus, and Thrasymachus was a, a conventionalist, or we might today say a moral relativist. I guess, I guess the kids think that's kind of cringe to say relativism, but <laughs> you could say positivism. But the idea that-
1: We could say relativism.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah. But the idea that morality changes mm-hmm. with time, or that it depends on what culture you live in. And Socrates said, no, there is justice by nature. There mm-hmm. is a, such a thing as natural right. And he refuted the conventionalist or a relativism of this other guy, Thrasymachus. Mm-hmm. So Jaffa absorbed all that. And then about a year later, He's in this used bookstore in downtown Manhattan, and he's flipping through a copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and he's seeing that Lincoln and Douglas, running for the Senate, the Senate, uh, Senate seat in Illinois in 1858, discussing the, the question of slavery and the morality of slavery, are reproducing that argument that Plato shows in the Republic more than 2,000 years ago. And Joff said, that's when I realized that what Strauss had said about the permanent questions about truth, about morality, about justice, as permanent Uh, features of human life, that's what brought it home to him. Mm -hmm. And he saw Lincoln and Douglas having that same debate that he read about in the Republic.
1: Well, it is fascinating. And so there are multiple strands there in that response. And I'm going to come back to the strand that relates to Jaffa particularly, but I want to, I want to sustain a really eloquent point you've made a couple of times about equality. What is the import of that academic realization that Jaffa made to 2022?
0: Right. So, um, Jaffa always thought and and followed Lincoln in this, that believing that, um, equality has to be the central principle Mm -hmm. of understanding American republicanism. In part because it is the thing that connects us to the idea of natural right. And natural Mm -hmm. right can be kind of a complicated term in academic or or the philosophical world, but it means the idea that there is some enduring truth, right? Mm -hmm. So to the, to the degree that all human beings are equally human or all members of the same human species, uh, that means That from that idea follows all the other ideas. Mm -hmm. So because you're not superior to me by nature, because nature did not mark you out as the queen bee is marked out among the bees, that means you can't rule me without my consent. Right. And that equality is our access to this classical idea that there is something permanently true or right by nature. And that idea of natural right informs everything else about America, according to Jaffa.
1: So here we said we're recording this in the summer of 2022, where there are a lot of Supreme Court decisions coming out. One of them, in particular, uh, will be out this summer, perhaps even within days of, of our recording this. We could take a step back from the timeliness of that because you're talking about something that is timeless. This this understanding for any center right American, whatever label they'll use to describe themselves. Is they think about decisions the Supreme Court has made over the last decade, so much of that, at least rhetorically, has to do with equality. Jaffa lived a very long life. Um, he was in his 90s by the time he passed away. So he's he's a contemporary of ours, even, even sitting here. But the, the point is, what would he make of how equality is used almost as a trope in American politics?
0: Yeah. So it bothered him a lot mm-hmm. that it had been basically completely transformed into almost its opposite. And right. And so he had a lot of battles with um, some of the traditionalists, some of the paleo-conservatives mm-hmm. who said, no, 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 human beings are not equal. Uh, this neglects the, the ways in which human beings are are unequal. And Jaffa always recognized that and always pointed out that political equality, the natural equality that we have, that the idea that we have the same rights by nature, is the opposite of egalitarianism or mm-hmm. equal outcomes. There's a wonderful passage uh, in Federalist 10 where Madison says – That the purpose of American constitutionalism is to protect the unequal faculties of acquiring property. Mm -hmm. So because we have equality of rights, because we have political equality, that's supposed to lead to unequal outcomes. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Today's left wing equity is literally the exact opposite of that. Equity assumes that we're unequal, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're members of certain groups, right? So members of certain classes. And it's the government, the government's job to take that inequality and make us all equal through this mandated form of, of equity and equal outcomes. So it's literally the reverse of what Jefferson and Lincoln were talking about.
1: What's our way out of that? I mean, we're going to get into the some big questions. That's certainly one of them. Uh, but, but by that, I mean, politically or maybe even in terms of policy. What's our way out of that? Which, and it's not a dilemma. I mean, this to to use a word that is overused in our modern parlance, it is existential to the very ideal of the American republic.
0: Right. Yeah. So the way out of that, in a way, uh, is, not, is not so easy to figure out. Yeah. I, I mean, what uh, a, a kind of a cop out answer is to say we need statesmanship, right? Yeah. There has to be someone who has the political skill, the political insight, the ability to speak to people, the ability to maneuver politically, to bring uh, different factions and interests to bear, uh, who has the skills of a Lincoln or a Winston mm-hmm. Churchill. There's no substitute for that. Uh, You know, I've been affiliated with the Claremont Institute for a long time. And one of the things in our mission statement is the study of statesmanship and political philosophy, because Mm -hmm. there's no substitute ultimately for statesmanship. You can teach people, you can prepare the ground, but you can't. That person has to emerge on his own. So in a way, uh, I'm not sure what the solution solution is until a statesman uh, emerges. Uh, I don't think that's
1: so much of a cop-out answer. Yeah. um, I'll let you off the hook a little bit. Okay,
0: okay, good. Because there's no substitute for political skill. Yeah, that's uh, right. To to solve political problems.
1: Our founders relied on that. I mean, they they assumed that would always exist.
0: Absolutely. But the other component of that is the statesman needs something to work with. And so all of these groups on the right, Heritage, Claremont, all the others, have to continue their work teaching people, educating people, so Mm -hmm. that when the statesman comes along, he can speak to people in a way they understand. So they understand what these concepts are. Um. Uh, on, on a on a lower level, I'd say both the left has already become so tribal. And the thing I would warn the right against, and I I see this a lot with younger people, you know, you, you talk about the dissident right or the alt right or younger the Twitter frogs as they're called sometimes online. They are so cynical mm-hmm. uh, about what's happened that they're retreating into a rejection of constitutionalism, of republicanism, of equality, rejecting all the principles of the founding and retreating into, into a kind of Alternate tribalism, right, So the left yeah. wants to become tribal, and so they think, well, we'll become our own tribal faction, and I don't think that's the answer. I don't think that can that can save the republic.
1: <laughs> I, I agree with you there, and, and I, I mean this just for the sake of illumination, not for for naming names, but by that description, are you referring to the integralists on our side?
0: so' that's, that's one yeah, so I think the withdrawal from politics, mm-hmm. the idea that we can simply form little communities and hold out. There is no escaping politics. One of Aristotle's lessons is we are by nature political animals. We live in political communities. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we can simply withdraw and ride it out, that's no answer at all.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we didn't talk about this before in the show prep, but our audience may know because I talk about it occasionally when I was president of Wyoming Catholic College, which was by its founding and something that I had celebrated and celebrate present tense, truly reactionary. I mean that's the, that is a factual statement, a reaction to the culture that there was this belief by very smart, well-intentioned people at the college and and some supporters of the college to adopt what our our friend Rod Dreher would say was the Benedict option. And I I, I said, well, while well, I understand that spiritually, I it, even then it's not correct, and and for those of us who adhere to that particular faith, it's theologically incorrect because we are called to be the leaven in this life. For people who are less overtly religious than people. At Wyoming Catholic, I would say exactly what you said, which is that we concede the political realm at our peril. Yes, we're living through that right now. Right.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, Because if you simply turn over uh, all the institutions of power to the left, there won't be any place to retreat to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because unlike our side, leftists wield the power they have. And then some.
0: Right. 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 And they have no intention of leaving us alone. Yeah. The idea that you can simply withdraw uh, assumes that there's a space to withdraw, too. But the left doesn't have any intention of leaving any such space.
1: One of the things that on that point that you write about eloquently, not just in the book about Jaffa, but in, in your many essays, is the, the the demise of most American institutions. And I was sharing with you before we started recording that that's really where a lot of my own thinking is that, you know, for what it's worth, obviously, heritage. Has always contributed to that conversation, hopefully in a helpful way. But uh, as just as a as a historian myself, I think we're living through what seems to me to be like the 1760s, and by that I mean, and you can of course say, "No, Kevin, you're wrong." But by that I mean a run up to some big inflection point that what did become the American Revolution. I hope that it's there's no bloodshed. I'm gonna be really clear about that. Right. But what I really mean by that is that we are realizing that the institutions, just as today, just as those in the 1760s, had been co-opted by people with a different set of values, different debate, different circumstances. I understand that. History, as we know, doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm grappling with just personally, and, and many of us at Heritage having this conversation, is that here in the 2020s, whether later this decade or the next decade, We are going to have an inflection point in this history where we either have to seize back the institutions that have been taken or we have to start new ones. What's Claremont's awesome about this. What's your sense of this?
0: I think that's exactly right. So I've been saying now for quite a while that conservatism is really not the right term to use anymore. Mm -hmm. When we've lost so many of our institutions, when the culture has become so corrupt and degraded, when the left controls uh, not just the whole federal bureaucracy, many of the states, but nonprofits, academia, Mm -hmm. popular culture increasingly all these woke corporations, right? That's not a status quo we want to conserve, right? right? That we can't continue and maintain our liberties. Mm-hmm. We have to get back. And so the, the phrase I've been using, which has been a little controversial sometimes, is we have to behave like counter-revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. We have to take back the institutions. We have to rebuild. We have to recapture our founding principles. And so uh, I think the, the, both the mindset and the phrase conservatism is not a useful way mm-hmm. to think about our politics anymore. Uh, we have to think much more aggressively and think radically. Um, you know, people get alarmed by the word radical, but the Latin root, uh, the Latin root is root. Uh, and, and one of the things I wanted to do in my book is show the roots, uh, show the basic fundamental questions, uh, which Jaffa spent his whole life exploring. What is the basis of Republican government? What does equality mean and why is it understood? And What does it mean properly? What does consent mean? What mm-hmm. what are our equal natural rights, and and where does that come from? What are what are the philosophical arguments behind all those things? And I think those questions have a- immense importance right now.
1: And it seems to me that the demise of most institutions is directly correlated to the possibility that we may not have as many people practicing the statesmanship that you understand. Right. In other words, just to borrow a little bit from De Tocqueville, if he were sitting here in this conversation. There has to be the context in which the institutions in which that kind of statesmanship can be formed. I mean, this, right. this, this is, this is part of our civic responsibility as many generations of Americans, not just in the founding generation, but all the well into the 20th century understood.
0: Right, right. Um, you know, statesmen, uh, uh, they're moved by uh, a love of justice, a love of the good, by, by patriotism, but most also want some form of honor. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, uh, most disheartening and amazing things that's happened in the last few years. It was that movement of tearing down our statues. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a lot of people didn't like it, but it disturbed me that more American people did not rise up and speak out against that. Because when you tear down, when a nation tears down memorials to its heroes, it makes it very hard for anyone else to step forward and say, okay, I'm going to put myself on the line. I'm going to risk everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm not even going to be honored by my countrymen, why should I do it? Um, And so this is the American people. I think uh, there's still a lot of patriotic sentiment left, but I'm, I keep waiting for the American people to uh, react with a little bit more vigor (laughs) to what's been happening. And it may still come. Uh, I'm hope I'm hopeful that it will still come.
1: Do you take some solace in, as I do the, these mostly apolitical parents, exhibiting their angst over yeah. the lack of transparency at best but the insidious indoctrination of their children yeah. Yeah. do you think that's a bottom-up kind of of counter-revolutionary action that that actually is real and should inspire us
0: absolutely i mean you know uh virginia's right right here yeah. uh a lot of people here probably live in virginia so what happened there was it Loudoun county yeah. where the parents uh, rose up and by the way one of the guys who helped instigate all that is a friend of Claremont, Chris Rufo. Yeah, sure. Um, that reaction by parents against the indoctrination I mean, when you go after people's children, yeah. you you get at them at the at a place that's very personal. And so yes, that was very heartening. Other aspects, you know, uh did the American people react uh in the way that one might hope to the COVID restrictions and shutdown? It would have been nice to see a little bit more. Mm. Now you did see pockets of that mm. here and there. What I would really like to see if there is a red wave in November, is a much, much, much more forceful statement by Republican majorities to expose what happened with this, you know, the overreach, the arrogance, the hubris, the assumption that the experts in Washington know everything better. Yeah. Really hammer that home and explain to the American people why this idea that a bunch of quote unquote scientific experts presume to run our lives from the Washington bureaucracy why that's wrong, explain it to the American people, expose the damage that was done. Mm-hmm. We, we have to explain that. We can't just assume that people, you know, uh, spend their time reading political philosophy like you and I do. It's up to statesmen, including people in Congress, mm-hmm. to explain. So I hope there are hearings. I hope Congress, instead of passing laws, devotes itself to exposing what is wrong with the federal bureaucracy and the administrative state today. And that's the way to build a popular movement and a popular reaction. Well,
1: that's right. And, and so many layers to what you said, but I want to key in on the, the comment you made about the COVID lockdowns and all, and, and really the technocracy that we, uh, those of us who are in the conservative movement understand, I think more and more that what happened during COVID, that is the, the wielding of power by bureaucrats, administrative state people shouldn't have surprised us, unfortunately, because that action, those actions, Became the logical consequences of something those of you affiliated with Claremont students of JOF have been saying for a long time, which is this is a matter of the ruling elites versus the rest of us. It's not exactly. Republican or Democrat. Right. Exactly we right. have lived that in a very unfortunate and frankly, tragic way the last few years.
0: Right. Right. No, I think tremendous numbers of ordinary uh, registered Democrats see this. Yeah. You know, and now there's another crisis looming, the economic crisis. I yep. think all signs are pointing to, if not an outright recession, certainly a lot more economic pain with rising prices, with, with shortage of goods and so forth. That's another opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, for conservatives and for Republicans to, uh, explain to people, you know, what's wrong, uh, here, uh, to, I mean, I think Joe Biden is going to have a very tough, Rodo, <laughs> Roto, if, if he does indeed run for re-election, and this is an opportunity now, and it's an opportunity not just to win at the basic political level, but to explain things to people, to explain yeah. where these problems come from.
1: Now, it, I mean, it, it's both troubling and exciting because yeah. it. those of us who, in spite of all the challenges in America, still look ahead to tomorrow and say, well, maybe we can inch forward in this progress, can take some solace in that. So you I want to slightly switch gears, but this is actually picking up a theme that that has been in your work and you've been explicit about in your your most recent scholarship. You and I both love the new criterion as probably a lot of uh, of our audience members do. And you wrote a, a a really thoughtful review of our mutual friend, Matthew Continetti's book. And you asked the question, how useful is it anymore to talk about conservatism? As more and more of our institutions fall to the woke plague, Continuity's question, what are conservatives trying to conserve, deserves a better answer. And you you conclude in this first part of this paragraph, even if all of us on the right agree with pro forma invocations of the Constitution, aren't we confronted with a dilemma? Right. What's the dilemma and how do we solve it, Glenn?
0: The dilemma is um, the status quo is... Uh, uh, Completely antithetical to the founders intention of how constitutional government should work. Mm-hmm. So to conserve the status quo, to conserve what we have now is to conserve, uh, the left wing oligarchy. It's to conserve, uh, the, the left wing control of social media. It's to conserve a massive, inefficient, oppressive administrative state in Washington. We need to be, uh, thinking not in terms of, of conserving, but in terms of getting back those mm-hmm. institutions, getting back those principles. And that means going back to the fundamental questions which I outline in my book.
1: Natural rights, declaration of independence. Exactly. Conserving that, applying those to the modern era and saying there is, at the very least, to put it politely, a disconnect here. And we have to have the political courage, the personal courage to fight back.
0: Right, right. If I can be a little bit academic for one minute. We'll uh, let you do that for uh, a minute. Uh, okay. Uh, I've, I've mentioned Arosal, uh, my, my one of my philosophical heroes, made a great issue of the, of the virtue of prudence. And mm-hmm. prudence is the ultimate virtue of the statesman. And people don't understand what that means today. They think it means like timidity or calculating. Right. Remember the first George Bush, you know, Saturday Night Live used to make fun of him. Wouldn't be prudent. And it means a kind of timid, you know, risk aversion. But for Aristotle and for statesmen, it means knowing the right thing to do at the right time in the right way. It's the ultimate practical virtue, but, but it combines both theoretical and practical wisdom because mm-hmm. it has, you have to know what you're aiming for. You have to know the principles you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so prudence is understanding both the principles, uh, the the basic ideas, the philosophical foundation, and then how to get there. And that's really a virtue, both of statesmen, but also of citizens in a self-governing regime, because in a a constitutional democracy, the citizens also participate in governing themselves. And so they also require prudence. (laughs) Just
1: kind of gets back to institutions and schools, et cetera. I would tease this out a little bit more and and delve into what we do about the conservative movement. This is, as students of, of Harry Jaffa know perhaps better than, than anyone, a movement that has always been divided, so to speak. Sometimes those divisions have, for various reasons, perhaps most notably the emergence of statesmen who can articulate a, a diagnosis of, of contemporary circumstances and a solution to those cohered the movement. What's your sense of where the movement is as it were today and what the best case scenario is for it? Not just relative to 2022 and 2024, although those are important, but for our ultimate objective, which is self-governance and in in the spirit of natural rights.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm optimistic about the base. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little while ago about the reaction among ordinary parents against critical race theory. Mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of uh, confusion and dissatisfaction and anger about the COVID that I don't think has been adequately you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say exploited, but, but used because it's a very re- legitimate sense of mm-hmm. grievance and anger and dissatisfaction. And conservatives and Republicans need to capitalize on that and explain to people what happened there. Mm-hmm. Because we're not going to fix any of these problems unless we explain to people. So I'm, but I don't see that kind of, you know, with a few exceptions here and there, there's a governor in a Southern state who I'm kind of a fan of, who uh I hope will step forward on the national stage Uh in Congress. You know, it's, it's hard to be enthusiastic about uh, all of the leadership. Mm-hmm. There's still very much that old line, you know, timid, preserve the status quo, tax cuts without really getting to the fundamental problems. And so I think the base is out there. They're ready to hear some really fundamental, important things being said. And I hope the leadership of the party steps forward and and takes up that challenge.
1: Yeah, and I, I will say with some cautious optimism here that I see that happening. I mean, have, having been on post for six months now and you know, I've spent a lot of time working in D.C. every other week for the last several years. So it's not that I didn't know anything about D.C., but as I tell people, I hope never to know a lot about it because our founders would find it abhorrent. That so much power has been centralized in DC and that the branch of government that's most responsible for that is the legislative branch for conceding their power. All of that to say that in order to take back that power, conservatives, it seems to me, have to develop a plan that will be executed by members of the legislative branch. But it's going to take a president of the United States with the gumption, with the cheerfulness to be able to be persuasive. To see this through, and it's not the kind of thing that's going to take only a few years, right?
0: Oh no, no, this is this is <laughs> tremendous work. So speaking of that, um, I think it's a mistake to think we could depend either on the president or the Congress. We mm-hmm. definitely need both. The yeah. way, I mean, we we're not so far departed from the Constitution that we can ignore the way the institutions still exist and mm-hmm. still function under the law. And you can't have fundamental change in, in the country without the president and substantial majorities in the Congress working together. Yeah. I'm a critic of Trump from the right and mm-hmm. that I think he – uh the mean tweets don't bother me as much as the fact that he failed to follow through on a lot of his promises. He came to Washington thinking that the government was a business and it's not a business. He didn't think politically. He didn't work very well with with Congress. There were a lot of things that he could have done and he didn't do because I don't think he appreciated uh the, the political dimension. I don't think he appreciated – uh In a way, uh, as as bold as he was, I don't think he appreciated how deep the problem is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I hope that the next conservative Republican president we get uh, appreciates uh, the political dimension and works with Congress because only only with the two of them working together will we have the kind of fundamental change we need.
1: Yeah, that resonates with me. And I I wouldn't be surprised if in his more reflective moments, the former president would agree with that, because I think it's it's uh, it would almost be common sense to the average American who's center right that. Someone would come in and want to, to DC and want to mix things up and realize, oh, this is much worse than I thought. But I think being a policy guy, I think about examples of that things that, that heritage and, and, and many people in the movement were working on. There probably could have been a conservative immigration reform mm-hmm. had the president and his allies in Congress actually been speaking to one another. I mean, we were on the cusp of that kind of, of agreement. Heritage was, was in the mix there. Do you think about what happened with fiscal restraint, which is to say nothing? Right. Um, that's perhaps one of the things that conservatives lament. And I don't mean that from the standpoint of so-called free market fundamentalism, because I am not and Heritage is not. But we do have this problem of spending in, yeah. in D.C. And we've really got to get to get that back on track. In fact, I'm afraid that it will be involuntary in the next few years.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. No, if we if we really do hit the recession, that looks like it may. I mean, there's going to be real pain and we're going to have to cut uh, in a in a much uh, uh, less planned and and, uh, careful way. Uh, We're going to be forced into it. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, we could talk about that, but I want to be sure before we we get to the end of our time, Glenn, that we talk about your book. And in case you're watching, uh, here's the cover, The Soul of Politics. Harry Jaffa and the fight for America. This is something that I I mentioned earlier. I just read the last few days. It's been out for for several months. What inspired you to write this?
0: So part of it was the the looming crisis that the country is facing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that Jaffa, uh, uh, with his background in bringing the study of political philosophy to bear on understanding America, had a lot to say, as we've been talking about, about these fundamental questions Mm -hmm. about the roots of Republican government about the philosophical basis of Mm -hmm. constitutional self-government. He had passed away in 2015, and in part, uh, he was a great influential teacher, an amazing man, and I wanted to just honor him as my teacher. Mm -hmm. And then in part, because his papers had become available at Hillsdale, Mm -hmm. uh, and those are a great resource, Uh, I mean, he wrote thousands of letters over his lifetime, and I didn't even get a chance to go through all of them yet. Um, And so for a variety of reasons, I thought the opportunity was there, and I thought, Telling the world about what Jaffa taught uh, was particularly useful at this time.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure you learned a lot about him. You go through someone's private papers. Um, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? Whether it was about his scholarship or something personal.
0: Um, he wasn't really that different in private than he was uh, in public. That's Sometimes, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so uh, he was. Uh, A a, a quarrelsome man, but also very kind to his students. Mm -hmm. He would never embarrass or humiliate a student. But when he was going up another against another intellectual or a political figure, he didn't hold back. He went at it hammering. He rather enjoyed that. He rather enjoyed it. And his person and his private letters are the same way. Even with some of his oldest friends, he'd say, I think you're wrong. And here's why. And he didn't hold back. He really, he cared about the truth, both publicly Mm -hmm. and privately. And. He didn't want his friendships to get in the way with that, but he also would not sacrifice truth for the sake of friendship, which is kind of unusual.
1: No it is. We we could use a little more of that, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, for people who are trying to place Jaffa in the modern conservative movement and they think about William Buckley, Russell Kirk, many others don't don't mean to be dismissive toward other luminaries in our movement. Mm-hmm. Where do you place him uh, philosophically, ideologically, maybe homing in on the most important contributions of his.
0: Right. I think are, there's an underappreciated story of Jaffa's role mm-hmm. in bringing the conservative movement, the American conservative movement back to a particularly American uh, mm-hmm. uh, presentation. Now that sounds odd from our perspective, but you have to remember when, when Buckley founded national review, he was uh, a Catholic. A lot of conservatives had a sort of nostalgia for mm-hmm. old Europe for right. throne and alter conservatism there was a a Southern wing which had some nostalgia for the old Confederacy, which mm-hmm. Jaffa was not necessarily a fan of. And he was a New York Jew and a Lincoln fan. So he was
1: he didn't jive with uh, that. Didn't
0: although he was friends with with some of these paleo- Mel Bradford, who sure. was a very famous paleo-conservative. He and Jaffa were close friends. He was friends with Wilmore Kendall, another famous yeah. paleoconservative. Um, and then the other part of it in those days was a very strong libertarian aspect. Mm-hmm. And all of those didn't fit together and easily they were sort of held together by anti-communism. But Jaffa, with his focus on Lincoln and his focus on the, the principles of the founding, really influenced Buckley. And Buckley talks about this sometimes. Nice. And Rick Brookhiser's book on the History of National Review talks about this. Jaffa really pulled Buckley and the magazine and therefore the movement itself towards a greater focus on Lincoln and, and America, mm-hmm. which it would not have had without his influence.
1: Huge contribution. Yeah. Well, the book is outstanding, so you need to get the book. But let me let me quote you extensively here, and we'll find that our conversation comes full circle here. This is toward the end. It's not the conclusion. This is going back to institutions, but but really philosophically, from the historian's point of view, one of Jaffa's contributions, this emphasis on natural rights mm-hmm. and, and the importance of, of maintaining that focus for those of us who are active in American politics. Digging a bit deeper, you write it may be that the original institutions cannot fully be recovered what we were talking about earlier and america will move to some more extreme form of federalism or as some of our friends say de facto separation even then you can you continue both the red and blue sections of america will likely embrace a form of liberal democracy though of course with radically different interpretations of what that means my interjection we're living through that but yeah. you continue Most basically, this will include the recognition that all human beings are less than divine, but more than animals. Even the creation of a rigidly aristocratic closed society could not, except by tyrannical means, force the modern mind, here's the kicker, to unknow the species equality of mankind, which is triply confirmed, you say, by philosophic natural right, the Bible, and the mapping of the human genome. Right. That's an awesome sentence by the way. Thank you. You should be proud of yourself. <laughs> Not that you need to hear that from me, Thanks. but unpack that for our audience because I think that is the bullseye for those of us doing the work we do.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot in that and it comes at the very end of a book uh, where I explain <laughs> all of that. But but this goes back to the idea that Jaffa thought equality was the central idea. And and it's it's unfortunate that it that it became so uh confused. You know, the founding fathers could not really fairly have anticipated communism mm-hmm. and the way egalitarianism distorted the idea of equality. But their idea of equality, um, I don't think there's any alternative to it in the modern world. Because as I say there, we know through philosophy that we're all equally human beings, mm-hmm. right? You are not an angel. And to the degree that you're a rational person, you're not an animal of the field. Mm-hmm. And it's unjust to treat mm-hmm. you as if you were an angel or to treat me as if I were an animal and therefore consent is required. We know from the Bible that we're all created in the image of God, right? We all have, uh, imperishable souls. Mm -hmm. That's a form of equality. And we know from modern science that we're, we all share every race shares essentially the same DNA. Mm -hmm. So the fact that equality is confirmed both by philosophy, by the Bible and by science I think proves that we can't get around that. And yeah. even the most hardcore paleocons or traditionalists who are uncomfortable with the idea don't really have any alternative to the idea of equal rights under the law. Mm-hmm. They certainly don't think that certain groups should be treated legally differently. So really, everyone believes in the idea of equality. We just have to understand it properly.
1: Right. There could be a lot of last questions, <laughs> in ours, but this will be the last question uh, for for what it's worth. For someone who is, is captivated with, with the book that you've written with, with your copious writing, and we're grateful for that as movement conservatives, but they're struggling to figure out where to focus their limited time. And could be someone who is in our generation. It could be as many members of our audience are, people at the beginning of their career, they often look to people like you. podcasts like this one for some sense of where to focus their limited time, where should they train their energy?
0: Well, um, <laughs> yeah, it sort of depends what your interests are. Yeah. Uh, you know, not everyone is inclined to philosophical things, right? You know, uh, you could flip through the book and there are some chapters that would appeal to you. Uh, you know, there's a whole section on uh, uh studies of Aristotle and Shakespeare. Some people I've had people who say that was the first thing they 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 opened the book to yeah. because they're interested in Shakespeare. Sure. Uh so you know depending on what your interests are you could just flip to a chapter that interests you. So first you. Uh, step is
1: buy the book and then figure course. out what you're interested right. in. Okay. Exactly. Very well exactly. played. I'm going to send a note to a publisher and say <laughs> okay. this guy was on top of his game.
0: Right, right. Yeah, everything you want to know <laughs> is in the book. No, but more seriously, uh look, you know some people are interested in particular policy areas, yeah. heritage, uh the Claremont Institute, uh you know, there's other think tanks out there. If you're interested in critical race theory, or Mm -hmm. if you're interested in controlling the size of the budget, there's a tremendous amount of material out there. There are online education programs. You know, I have friends at Hillsdale College do offer tremendous amount of online free educational programs. If you're interested in the history of world war II, or I mean, there's, you don't even have to leave your house now. And so it's just a matter of looking, uh, you know, make sure you're, you're not, uh, you know, falling into something crazy, you know, yeah. do do a little due diligence to make sure this is something legitimate. But there's a tremendous amount out there, depending on what people are interested in. And Heritage and Claremont and Hillsdale are are three places that I would recommend.
1: Well, thanks. So apathy is not an option. No, apathy is not an option. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very good. Well, Dr. Glenn Elmers, thanks for this. I look forward to many more.
0: Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kevin Roberts show. We will be back next week with yet another in-depth conversation with an American who's making a difference. Thanks for making the show possible. The Kevin Roberts show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Phil Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.